This is the Improved Photography Podcast, episode number 210. With the beginning of the new year, many of you have resolved to take on a new challenge like starting a business, changing a career, or launching a creative project. To start your free trial today of Squarespace, you can enter offer code IMPROVE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move. Hey everybody and welcome back to the Improved Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Harmer, and today I am joined by Greg Benz and Brent Bergherm. Hey guys. Hello. Well, uh, you all know Brent from Brent Rents Lenses, uh, has been on the podcast a few times, uh, but Greg, you're new to the show, so I'm uh, very glad to have you. You're going to be speaking at the Improved Photography Conference in just a couple weeks. Uh, for those of you who, who, who don't know you, uh, tell us about you and, and what you're doing in photography. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, and thanks for having me on, Jim. Uh, so I'm, I'm a landscape and cityscape photographer based out of Minneapolis. Uh, I'm a photography educator as well and software developer. Uh, big uh, emphasis personally on uh, luminosity masking as a technique and, and uh, education as well. Awesome. Well, we're anxious to talk a little bit about Lumenzia a little bit later. Um, but um, to start this episode, we wanted to start Start talking about tilt shift lenses. I know this is something you've been playing with, uh, Greg. Uh, I've done some work with tilt shift, and I know, Brent, you have as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So maybe, Greg, I'll toss this to you first. What exactly is a tilt shift lens to somebody who hasn't used or seen one? Yeah, well, and, and for those who haven't seen one, uh, hopefully you can see this. Okay, this is uh, the Canon 17 millimeter tilt shift mounted to, to my Sony and uh, if you can see it here, there's a bunch of knobs around the side of this lens. So it can actually tilt. So when I spin this, the lens is actually going to uh, bend. So I can sort of uh, spin it side to side. So halfway and, up the lens, those that are on audio, the lens is like physically bending, right? Exactly. And then the, the shifting. So now I'm moving it kind of down and, and up on the body there. So, so basically... Uh, two different types of movement that are built into the barrel of the lens. And and so there are a couple benefits uh, of a tilt shift lens. Uh, certainly a lot of creative uses, but the basic two benefits um, are one, you can really toy with depth of field in ways that you can't really any other way. Um, you can, you can kind of choose where is going to be in and out of focus. Um, and then the the uh, second thing is that you can change the the perspective, the way that things look in the image. So if you're shooting a tall building, for example, if I just shoot it with a wide angle lens and I'm at the bottom of the building, the bottom of the building is going to look really wide and huge. And the top of the building is going to come up. You know, it's going to be like a triangle up to the top of the building. And with the tilt shift lens, it doesn't need to be that way. You can straighten out those lines. So those are kind of the two basic uses um, or, or the basic features of what a tilt shift uh, can do. Why, why has it found a place on your camera? So I I think a lot of landscape photographers probably use it like I do, which is almost always for the shifting, which is controlling the geometry and and how the image looks in terms of the shape of lines and things like that. The the other piece, the tilt, which is all about the focus, uh, is super complicated and a lot of people never get into it, but but they both have value. So the, the tilting is something I want to get into as a way of adding depth of field to my images. So you can imagine if I'm shooting a landscape and I've got some flowers in the foreground and a mountain in the background, 
I could shoot multiple images at different, uh, you know, focal points. I could focus on the flower, take a shot, focus on the mountain, take a shot. And then in Photoshop, blend those together. Uh, or with a tilt function on the lens, you can actually change the focal plane to be almost horizontal. So that it goes through the flowers and through the mountain. So with one shot, get everything sharp, even at like F8, where the lens is super sharp. So that can help with um, reducing Photoshop. It can help with also if you have wind or things are going to make it hard to blend, it can, can be really helpful. Um, but where I personally use it is the shifting. Um, so I shoot a lot of cityscape and you always want to have nice straight lines. So if I'm on the ground looking up at a building, the top's always going to be kind of, you know, caving in on itself. And if I'm up on top of a rooftop looking down in the city, everything's going to have the reverse problem. So being able to shift the lens really helps with that. And, and I think that's one of the obvious ways people use it, but I use it for some other, other ways of shifting as well, because sometimes you're not looking straight into a building. So it's not just about going up or down, but sometimes it's left or right. Uh, I had a, a shoot recently where I got on a balcony that was kind of looking off on an odd angle at my main subject. And so I used the shift lens to actually shift to the right and keep everything looking nice and, and clean and straight in an image like that. Um, so it's just ultimately about getting those nice crisp lines that, that geometrically look right. And, and when you see the difference between one side by side, you can really appreciate how amazing it looks. And you could go to Photoshop and correct things to try and straighten the lines, but you're losing resolution and it's, it's not really quite the same. Yeah, you have to squish pixels. You can usually straighten things out in Photoshop, but one, it's not a very fun job to do. And the other thing is anytime you're doing that in Photoshop, you're squishing and stretching pixels. It can't just invent new pixels to straighten things out um, without uh, well, it, it can, but it's not going to do it and keep the same amount of sharpness. So I'm seeing an image on your website, Greg, of a monastery that you posted recently. Is this with the tilt shift? Is, is that the uh, the mosque from uh, Abu Dhabi, like kind of a pinkish sky? Uh, no, this is like an into. It looks like a library. Library. This is on um, your website. Oh, you yeah, just yeah, posted yeah, yeah. this. Just posted this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that. That Will image. The real Greg Benz, please stand up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that image was not shot with a tilt shift. The one beneath it that shows a mosque, that was shot with uh, my 24 Nikon tilt shift. Oh, very cool. Um, and what I, what I did with that one is um, I, I shifted it. So basically, you, you get the camera level and then you shift up or down to frame the subject, and then everything's perfectly straight. And then I did a pano. So it's actually kind of a, a left middle right pano to get this mosque that I could have shot with a 14 millimeter wide, but by using the tilt shift, not only is everything straight, but when I combine the pano, I've got a lot more resolution. It's going to be probably a 60 or 70 megapixel image instead of 36. Very cool. Uh, in this image with the mosque, uh, how much shift do you, do you, if you remember, how much shift did you do on that, on that picture? Um, did it take it very far, like all the way to the limit that the lens goes, or was it just a little bit that you took it? What? It was it was halfway to the limit, okay. And and I I had put the camera vertically, mm-hmm. and then was shifting it up and down to to get right. this frame. Um, and when I go vertical, I don't want to shift all the way because you start to vignette. If you go to the, the far yeah. ends of it, you, you and if That's I was shifting about. exactly, yeah, you can. If it's the sky, you know, you can just fix that. But you got to watch out for that when you're shifting horizontally. Uh, you know, the other direction, it's fine. But. Right. Because you, you've got a lot of sky in this one. So the vignette 
it wouldn't have mattered so much probably. But I, when I had the, I, I tried out the 17, like you just showed on the video there uh, one time with a tree. Uh, so not a subject like architecture, like you're showing, but I thought, well, I'm just going to see how this goes. And so I shifted all the way to the edge and it vignettes pretty significantly. And I think that's something that if someone's going to go out and try that, they just need to be aware of how much it, it falls off. The light falls off on the end. Yeah. And, it's, it's not like a typical vignette from a lens. It's, it's right. more like when the filter is just straight up blocking the view. Yeah. Cause the, what the beauty of this type of lens is it's, it's throwing such a large image circle and all you're doing is you're shifting the position of that image circle. So you're capturing a different section of it. So basically I guess you could say your full frame camera becomes kind of like a crop sensor because it's such a smaller frame compared to what the image circle is that the lens produces. But when you get to the edge of that, you start to really have a lot of fall off uh, of that light uh, value. And sometimes it's correctable, sometimes it's desired, sometimes it's just looks terrible. Yeah, well, the other nice thing about that is since you're basically shooting in the center of a very large lens is kind of the way mm -hmm. I think about it. Right. It's, it's much more sharp in the corners than a typical lens because the, the optical oh, yeah. defects are, are outside of what you're shooting if you haven't shifted you know, off center. Yeah, and that's where if you shift completely off center, you're gonna see some of those distortions as well though. But so, yeah, when you hold it to about a middle grade like you did here, everything's sharp, it's beautiful, it's excellent. So Greg, if you and I are taken off somewhere in the world, we're going to go shoot some landscapes and you get one lens to bring with you. Is it a tilt shift? Uh, I would probably bring my 14 to 24 as my one lens. Okay. So what, what's the reason for that? Uh, if I'm using the tilt shift, it's definitely a slower, more deliberate process mm -hmm. and it's a it fixed focal length, right? None of these are zoom lenses and they're manual um, focus and they're manual focus. And they're not F2.8. So if I was shooting a starry sky, I'd lose a little bit of ability to shoot at night. So there's some limits. I mean, it's an awesome lens, but it's definitely not a the only lens you want to shoot with on any given trip. Okay, so I don't I'm not trying to hijack your doodad here, but you have <laughs> already um, you have the Canon 17 millimeter F4, which is what you talked about. And I see your doodad is now yeah. the Nikon 19 millimeter F4. Why in the world does one person need two F4 tilt shift wide angle uh, lenses uh, that are only two millimeters apart? You know, it's kind of bad. I actually have like all of them. I have all the Nikon tilt shift now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, spoiled with riches. Um, so the, uh, the Sony for me, you know, is, is the A7R Mark II, that's my more lightweight travel camera. Uh, a lot of times I wouldn't necessarily bring that tilt shift with me, but that the 17 versus 19, there's definitely a, a bit of a difference. Uh, I also got it when the 19 wasn't available for the Nikon. The reason I want the Nikon, there's no way of mounting this Canon lens to my, to my D810, which is my primary camera. And when I travel, I'm gonna bring two D810s, so I have a backup body. And there's really no room for me to bring the extra Sony. So this lens just doesn't help me in the field. So part of it is, is just the fact I can't use it. And part of it is uh, 19 is kind of the sweet spot for a lot of things. 17 is a little too wide and 24 is a little too close. 19 just kind of tends to be that awesome, perfect number. Okay. Very cool. So, 
All right. Um, next, we wanted to talk a little bit about some updates to Lumenzia. So, uh, first of all, Lumenzia is a great program, um, and I've been playing with it. It looks awesome. And uh, tell us, tell us first what Lumenzia does, and uh, and kind of where it, it sits in the market, because there are certainly competitor competitors to it. Um, you know, kind of what the reason is to to pick Lumenzia, and then tell us a little about uh, some updates and things you have coming up. Sure. Yeah. Well, so uh, Lumenzia is a, uh, it's a, what do you call it? A Photoshop extension panel. It's a plugin for Photoshop. So you think of the, the layers palette, all the different tools you have in Photoshop. When you install Lumenzia, you get one more, well, you get two more panels that you can use. It gives you additional functionality within Photoshop. And specifically what it does is it helps you with luminosity masking. So uh, which is kind of a niche thing, but super powerful. So for people who aren't familiar with luminosity masking, the general idea is that rather than say, like take the magic wand, which, you know, if you select the sky, it's like, it's either selected or it's not selected. There's no subtlety to it. You know, everything is a like hard edge, you know, things tend to look Photoshopped and you spend a lot of time trying to make things look more natural. A luminosity mask is basically taking what's in the image and using that to create your selection. So instead of using the magic wand in the sky, I can say, well, I want to select the blue highlights in the image and create a selection or mask from that. And now I have something that looks really soft and subtle and I can go in with a curve or whatever I want to use to then adjust that part of the image. So I could take a, a sky, bring back more color or add more contrast in the midtones, or change the color balance in the shadows. It could be really anything you want to do. It, it can apply across huge ranges of what you do in Photoshop, but the, the general idea is that it gives you a much more natural to much more natural way to make very complicated selections. Okay. Um, and then, and then to your question of, you know, what's kind of the, the, the reason for Lumenzio, right? There's other ways of doing, uh, you know, people have, uh, you know, actions, people make them manually. There's other panels, uh, the general idea that I had with uh, Lumenzia was the other ways of doing luminosity masking that existed when I started creating this three years ago uh, were all based on channels. And so it's it's a lot of kind of complex thinking. is a very technical way of looking at the art. You got to open up the channels palette. You're diving back and forth. You're kind of limited in your options. It just it wasn't a workflow that I liked. Um, it was very left brain and I wanted to be more right brain when I was doing my art. I want to think about the image, not think about the technology. And so it, it maybe sounds a little bit silly that the solution to my problem of spending too much time in Photoshop was to go and like develop the software. Start a business. Was, <laughs> <laughs> Start a business about the details of Photoshop. Yeah. But it, but it was ultimately about freeing myself up so that when I'm in the creative zone, I can be creative. Uh, and so that's, that's really its mission. It's just specifically focused on luminosity masking. Um, it, it's all about making different kinds of, uh, selections in various ways. It's a, you basically, it has kind of three different things. It lets you kind of preview or create a, a mask. You can then apply it various ways, whether that's through an adjustment layer, like a curve or on a dodge and burn layer or sharpening. Uh, and then the, the third component is the ability to revise the masks. So usually if you create a luminosity mask, it's sort of a, you know, selection of everything on the image that's somewhat similar. So maybe all the highlights, but, you know, I don't necessarily want all the highlights. I want the highlights in, you know, this corner of the image or just the, the yellow highlights or something like that. So you, you kind of create a mask and tweak it, 
you then apply it to something and then you refine it to, you know, get that final mask is the, the general idea. Very cool. So at, at what level of, of Photoshop usage do you need to be at to be able to uh, start with luminosity masks? It's definitely the most complex thing that I've done in Photoshop. Um, but that said, the goal with, with what I've done with Lumensi is to try and make it much easier. Uh, I think if you're comfortable with the idea of layers and masks, especially masks that have some level of like gray, they're not just black or white, um, then you have the tools to really understand what's going on. And, and Lumensi comes with like three hours of training to help explain it. There's a lot of other tutorials on luminosity masking out there. And if you understand the general ideas, you can move between these different panels. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of different options that will you create really good art. I mean, I've seen great images from, from all these different products. So it's not to say that you can't make good art with any of them. Um, I think it's more just stylistic, you know, and, and with the style I have, it's, it's very visual. You see the mask on screen, you can interactively change it. It's just a, you know, that that's kind of the workflow that I liked. Okay. Really? Yeah, cool. I, and yeah. I really like it. I mean, it, uh, it just gives you infinite control over tones, uh, where you can do a lot, just moving around highlights and shadow sliders and things in Lightroom. This is like 10 times more control over those tones, uh, over how you're bringing in those highlights and bringing in those shadows and, um, and those, the, those color tones as well. Uh, it, it just, it's people that, uh, you know, are on Lightroom and you sometimes hit a wall of, of kind of where, what you can do with that image's tones. That's where luminosity masking really shines. I think, uh, it's a little bit of an investment, uh, to a uh, mental investment, uh, to get into luminosity masking and kind of learn how to do it. Uh, but I, I think well worth the time. Uh, if you're kind of at that level where you know how to use Photoshop, you're very comfortable in Lightroom, then it's a good time to, to dive in. Yeah, I, I always tell people just kind of start, you know, on the smaller stuff. A lot of people try and jump right to exposure blending, which one of the really amazing things you can do with luminosity masks is kind of manually create an HDR. So I think most people know HDR software lets you take different exposures, combine them and get more detail from the image. With luminosity masks, you have the tools to do it yourself, but the results are so much more beautiful. They really, you don't have the noise the artifacts, you can, you know, bring out the details that you want, ignore the details you don't want. So you have complete control. And, and that's, I mean, I think that that's what a lot of people jump into luminosity masks to do, but that's also the hardest part of it. And there's a lot of other things you can do with it uh, before you even get there. And maybe you just want to, you know, tweak the, the clouds a little bit or something like that in an image without having to combine exposure. So mm -hmm. I, I always tell people just start, you know, baby step into it. Don't try and jump into the deep end of the pool. Well, cool. And so tell us what's, what's coming new to Lumenzia, what you're up to. Uh, yeah. So, um, Lumenzia has been out now for, uh, basically two years and I'm getting ready. To, uh, it's crazy. This is the 11th or 12th update I've made to Lumenzia. So it's very active cause I'm, you know, I'm a photographer and software developer. So, you know, as soon as I come up with some new idea, I'm working on the next version and, um, it's the main tool I use for my own work. So I'm just constantly working on it. And this, this next version, I'm really excited about. It's gonna be called version uh, 3.0. And it's got about 50 different changes to it, but there's uh, two that I'll just call out that I, I think are really exciting. Um, one of them is a, a contrast enhancement feature within it. 
And what you can do is select tones in the image. And that could be with a luminosity mask. So maybe I click on, you know, zone eight because it has a, an Ansel Adams style zone system. So I could, you know, pick a, a particular zone and then it'll enhance the contrast in that zone. Or I can. Ooh, that's pretty cool. I love it. <laughs> I like that idea. That's cool. So, I, so let me back up for maybe those yeah. that 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 flew over their heads a little bit. So, oh, Ansel Adams Zone System is basically saying, you know, everything from zero black and ten perfectly white. Um, everything else is just given a number for for the tone, uh, the brightness of that tone. And so what you're telling me is you can select, you know, hey, let's look at at our eights, uh, which is something that's almost clipped, but but there's still detail there. It's very bright, and we can just work kind of in that area. Exactly. So you can pick those zones. So Lumenzi has always had a, a zone system. Um, that's been around, but what's new is this contrast enhancement feature. So what it does is it looks at the specific pixels you're selecting. Maybe I just draw a lasso around one quarter of the image. Maybe I pick the highlights. It could be many different things, but whatever I'm about to adjust, it creates an S curve, a contrast enhancing curve based on the tones you select. So if I select some shadows, it will increase the contrast in those shadows. And That's if I select really the highlights, cool. and it, it, it basically outputs this S curve with like a 35% opacity. So you can just simply slide the opacity up or down to get more or less contrast. So you don't ever have to understand or adjust a curve. You can just apply it and it automatically gives you what you need. Plus it has the mask. So a lot of times you might enhance contrast in one part of the image and it comes at the penalty of hurting or reducing contrast somewhere else in the image. This is naturally giving you protection. So it lets you uh, go and extract a lot of local detail and you can do so really quickly. Like I, if I have a landscape, I could just um, actually, uh, do you mind if I share my screen for a sec? I could show you. Sure. Yeah. Um, let's see if this works here. Um, all right. Can you can you see my Photoshop? Yep. Yeah, we okay. can see it. So I'll I'll kind of help narrate things because a lot of our listeners are on audio. Okay. So this is an already finished image, but if I wanted to take it a little bit further, so right now I've got the lasso tool. I could just simply select some part of the image. I'm just drawing a lasso around this mound that's kind of a, a central focal point in the image. And there's this contrast button in Lumenzi. I just click that and I just hit okay. And I don't know how well you can see it here on the web. I'm just gonna dial it all the way up, but it's basically, you know, change the contrast in that specific area oh, that, that cool. I adjusted. Okay, so we're seeing we're taste. seeing a photo of a sunrise or a sunset, and then we're taking you've just kind of drawn a lasso around the area that's it's pretty dark um, in the photo, just kind of the, of a grassy area on the bottom, and you're just adjusting the the contrast of that region and those those tones. Is that right? That's exactly it. So if if you look at the mask here, it's just in that one area, and if you look at the curve it created, it created this S curve. So it's basically the tones are down in this part of the image and it's increasing the contrast in that part of the image and then applying it with this bass. So it's increasing contrast, you know, just for those tones, just in that area of the image. Wow. That's, that is a lot of control. That is awesome. I'm excited so, to play with that. Okay. So you, you talked about that. You said there was one other thing you're really excited about. Yeah. So the, the other one is, uh, Ups and out luminosity masks have kind of been this general euphemism for masks and selections. Mm -hmm. But in the new version of the panel, um, I've, I'm giving you a completely new way of creating masks using blend if. Uh, 
Um, so if people are familiar with uh, Blendif, it's it's kind of like um, this extra little tool within Photoshop. It's built in Photoshop where you can automatically exclude certain tonal ranges in the image. But what Lamenti is doing is giving you a way to automatically take all of the different, um, you know, all the different, you know, luminosity masks you would create, all the zone masks, and apply them as a blend if. So let me uh, just kind of quick pull up here. If I was going to do like a uh, solid color layer just to, you know, create more orange in the image here. So I'm just going to do some, this is kind of a ridiculous edit, but just to illustrate the point. If I wanted to apply this to the highlights in Lamenzia, I could create a you know, lights mask and, and hit the mask button. And now I have adjusted you know, my, my cloud to be a little bit more orange in the sky. But in doing so, I've added a mask. So my image started out at 25 megabytes and now it's 33 megabytes. So it's, it's eating up a little space and the mask is fixed. If I went in and changed anything underneath it, if I retouched the dust spot, if I cloned out a person, you know, the mask would be out of date. But instead here of creating that mask, Lumente now has this blend if mode and I can just click on the different modes. And so now it's created a blend if that does the exact same thing, but it doesn't add any file size. It doesn't add any size to the file whatsoever. And it's completely dynamic. So if I make changes in the underlying layers, it's always current. Oh, that's really cool. <clears throat> and the, it, it, it's the thing about it that I really like, it's super flexible, even, um, Lamenti, the zone pickers and the range tool work as well, which are basically tools to pluck tones right of the image. So if I wanted to apply this in, in the tones up here above these clouds, I can just click on this picker, click up in the clouds, hit OK, and now my blend if is working on that tonal range. So it's, you know, it's really kind of what you see is what you get. It's a way of giving you the exact blend if you need in like one click. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm uh, I'm excited to uh, play with it. When we, might we see this uh, version three? So I'm just kind of going through the final stages of making sure all the bugs are worked out. I think I'm pretty close. So I'm hoping to release it in about a week. Awesome. And for for anyone who has it now or they you know they they plan to get it right now, it's it's a free upgrade. So no worries. Ever everyone will get a, a copy who's who's got Lamenzia now. Very cool. Well, thanks for showing that to us. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, next, I wanted to ask uh, or, or answer a question that uh, I got uh, really just from one from one user. So uh, you all know uh, it's hardly a secret now uh, that uh, Improved Photography has been working on a photo locations um, app uh, that will come out for iOS in just a few weeks, um, sometime in probably late March. Um, the The problem is bigger than I ever imagined uh, with photo location uh, uh, recommendations. Uh, you know, when I, the first time I went to Iceland, second time I went to Iceland, I spent, you know, over 20 hours just researching locations and there's nothing more frustrating. This happened to me last year. I went to Banff in Canada. I had a great shoot. Awesome. Uh, beautiful place. I came home and that next day somebody posted a photo, uh, of Banff in Canada of like this insanely awesome composition. And I was like, where is this place? <laughs> I, I researched this place forever and I never saw that. Um, it, it takes, it's a lot of work, uh, to research photo locations and, 
the goal of the app is to research the whole planet of photography <laughs> locations. Uh, so it's a very big uh, problem. Uh, there have been a number of apps that have, have come out and they've all died off eventually. Um, probably the one that I had the most hope for uh, was Trey Ratcliffe's. I don't know if you guys have played with that. I, I don't know if it's still in existence. Uh, yeah, I think you can still use it. Stuck can on you Earth? still use it? Yeah, the Stuck on Earth. Uh, it it made a lot of noise in the industry. Uh, he did a great job. It's a beautiful inter- interface and stuff, uh, but but it's pretty much died out. I, I almost never hear anything uh, about it anymore. Um, and so I think it did a lot of things well. It had a ton of locations, uh, which was great. It was a beautiful interface. But the problem that I have found with it, and and also one other, probably the biggest out there right now, is ShotHotspot.com. Um, and so they have tons and tons of locations. Um, the problem with those and the reason that I wanted to create another, and I don't want to disparage those at all because they're very useful. They're great tools. But the reason that it didn't solve my problem of still needing to spend 20 hours researching locations is because they're fully automated. So uh, what they're doing is they're trolling Flickr. Uh, they're finding photos that are one, geotagged, and two, have comments and likes on them. And they're saying, that's a photo location. It can also be a, a, a birthday party of grand, Grandma Susie um, that got a lot of likes from her sons and daughters. Uh, and so you see some weird results uh, in there because it's fully automated. Uh, really, it, it, and that's why we have to do so much research when we're going uh, to a photography location is it's not an automated process. You need to, you need to look through and you need to research and find out how to get to all these places and, um, and things like that. Um, so, uh, so those are very useful uh, apps for sure, um, but it really doesn't solve at least my problem of, of needing to spend so much time uh, researching locations and the problem that I have of uh, just not getting out to shoot enough. Uh, I shoot like crazy when I'm on trips uh, and I'll go shoot with you guys uh, at our meetups. We're going to Ireland next month. Uh, So I'll do tons of shooting there. And then I get back to Boise and I don't shoot very much, at least in terms of landscapes until the next trip. And the reason is uh, I say, ah, you know, I'm just kind of bored with my area. But as I researched Idaho photo locations, I think we had like 60 locations in Idaho and I hadn't shot more than half of them. I haven't even shot before. Uh, So it's just incredible potential, but you've got to, it takes a lot of research. And so that's the difference between what we're doing and what's out there right now um, is that this is like zero automation. These are all recommendations of locations from me and from uh, the users of improved photography. Do you, do you guys have the same problem? Do you spend forever so, researching locations? I, I do. And uh, just to illustrate your point, Jim, I just got out of shot hotspot and they had an, an addition from Bristol in the UK and it's pictures of an overturned truck. They had an accident and mm. I have no interest in that. <laughs> the accident's probably moved by now. <laughs> so, you know, as far as something that's uh, curated, there's going to be such a, a, I think, a huge value to that, at least if it's even partially curated uh, uh, in that kind of sense. It's just going to be wonderful because, you know, I think you'll be able to have people will be able to have more faith in, in what they're seeing and what they're, what they're accessing, what they're spending their time on. But absolutely, it takes forever. Whether you spend time on Google Earth, Google Maps, 
all sorts of websites, do Google images searches and all this other stuff. It just takes forever to, to find some of these. And uh, an app like that would certainly uh, shorten the time frame, at least uh, for many locations. I, I think it would shorten the time frame. Yeah, I, I, I'm in the same camp. When I go on a trip now, I spend more time prepping before I fly than probably anything else I do. I spend yep. so much time, you know, and, and I'm not just trying to like find spots that other people shot. I'm looking at the map. I'm looking at where they're, you know, here's a body of water that might reflect. Here's a good vantage point, you know, things like that. Um, but it's, it's so much work. And especially for folks who are not working professionals who have mm -hmm. limited time, it's really tough. And I, I find there's two problems. One is exactly what you said in terms of uh, it's just hard to find the good locations, right? It's, it's fine if the photo is low quality, if it shows you an interesting subject, mm -hmm. but if it's an overturned lorry, then, you know, thanks for that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the other, the other one I see a lot of times is, uh, especially for landscape, right? Because the distance from the camera to the subject can be so far. Mm -hmm. I mean, if someone showed a really interesting shot of the Eiffel Tower, they probably put the pin on the Eiffel Tower, not in the spot where they shot from. So you could spend all day trying to guess where yep. it is and reverse engineer the angle and, and that sort of thing. Yes. So I find that the geodata can be way off. Yes, way off. And that's another problem. Uh, I call this the Vestrahorn problem as I've been talking with my team <laughs> trying to uh, plan for this. So this is an embarrassment of mine. So we, uh, Nick Page and I were leading a workshop in, uh, in Iceland and I had researched this out, spent so much time, wanted to shoot Vestrahorn. I hadn't been there yet. I'd been to almost every location we'd, we visited that week, but I hadn't been to Vestrahorn. And so I thought, ah, well, it, it's a little bit of a risk, but it was an incredible location. So, you know, I did all the research, found the GPS location. We're going to be good. We'll find it, right? It's a whole mountain, right? Well, two <laughs> hours later, after watching this incredible light go past as we were going back and forth in cars trying to find this location, uh, we had totally missed it. We spent forever trying to get there. Uh, it's, it's tough, even with GPS locations, because one, they're so often wrong uh, if we're just getting it from a camera or something uh, because the camera needs to turn on and fire a picture when you do it. Well, you know, if you you fly a drone, you know this, it takes a while to acquire all the satellites mm -hmm. and really get that info. Uh, if you're doing it with a cell phone, you're going to be a little bit more accurate because then we know what towers you're on and things like that. Uh, but but the the GPS and a camera is not super great unless you've had the camera turned on for a little bit and we have time to get more satellites to really uh, get that down to a specific spot. So you'll see photos geotagged, uh, you know, on Flickr, but that are not the right spot. And so we're going through every single location, thousands of them, uh, and double checking to make sure what's right. I'm positive we're going to have errors in there, uh, but we... Uh, are spending a lot, a lot of time, hundreds of hours, uh, trying to verify uh, each and every location. And are you crowdsourcing it where users can, you know, provide feedback if something's wrong or correct an entry? Yes, yes, definitely. So you can uh, comment on a, on a location whenever you visit. So you can, you know, say things like, uh, you know, that's probably the last time we can shoot it this year. It's kind of socked in with snow now. Uh, just kind of give updates on what the conditions are like there. And also you can, you know, flag it and say, hey, 
Jim, you're an idiot. You messed something up here. Uh, and then we can uh, correct those things as quickly as possible. Now, the other thing that's difficult uh, that I, I feel like other apps have have struggled with, and, and I, I really, I don't want this to make it sound like I'm disparaging other apps because I'm really grateful for any resource that's out there uh, to help with, uh, with photo locations because it's a tough problem, very pr- hard problem to solve. But one of the things that I wanted to do in this app is to add as much of that curation as possible because when i go to a page um that just is a list of hundreds of pins in you know toronto ah now i gotta sort through hundreds of pins uh to find the good locations it's helpful but not that helpful um Especially, you know, if I'm flying to Toronto for a business meeting, uh, I just got tonight after the conference is over and I want to go shoot. Man, I I didn't have eight hours to sort through and pick locations. It'd be really great uh, if there was some kind of star rating on these. And so we've gone through each of the thousands of locations and assigned a star rating to them. Now, um, we did get a couple emails, uh, really two out of thousands, um, that said their concern was that by publishing more photo locations, it's just going to more overwhelm uh, geographic and environmental areas. And that's actually one of the main reasons that I wanted to start the app uh, was exactly to solve that problem. Uh, because, uh, well, for example, we were in Zion National Park. We did a big improved photography meetup there last year. Um, and we were shooting, there's this overlook over the bridge looking to a specific tree in the river there. Um, very popular spot. There were well over a hundred photographers i mean shoulder to shoulder there was i mean Mm. no one's shoulder was not contacting another photographer there was not one space to put in another tripod um on on this bridge and this very famous spot it was nice it's a good spot to shoot Uh, but i i went around and chatted with a bunch of the the photographers there and uh, i showed them some pictures on my phone that we'd taken uh during that day um and Uh, I probably talked to 40 different photographers and none of them had seen this other spot where I took one of the best pictures I'd ever taken that was just 30 minutes away and there was like no one went there while we were shooting. Um, And it's not that it was a super secret location by any means, uh, but, you know, when you just search, you know, what to photograph in Zion, you get this blog post with five locations and so that's where you go. Um, And so the whole purpose of the app is to help people to find all the incredible places that are in the world so we don't overwhelm one spot uh it's about finding new places and not just shooting what everybody else does so are you going to have a a designation that says you know this is the iconic spot that you know a bazillion other people already have and get it if that's what you have to get but also go over here is that how it's going to work yeah i'm trying to just write that uh, as clearly as possible in the description of some of those major hot spots just saying hey go get this but you know, 10 miles away, there's a better spot and nice. and you won't probably see any other photographer while you're there. Uh, I yep. really want to spread us out as photographers. Yeah. There's a lot of world out there uh, that's yeah. just undiscovered. And, you know, I, I we can't blame photographers on this too i do it just as much as anybody else i go to those famous spots and and the reason is you know if i'm in salt lake overnight and i don't know the area uh, i don't want to spend four hours 
driving around on random roads hoping I find something. I want to have a quick win. I only have one night there. Um, And so I want to find a location that's kind of, you know, something not not canned, but but something where I'm going to have success. Uh, and if I have a week to explore an area, then, uh, yeah, I, I want to go trail trailblazing and find something new. Well, the, the benefit I would find with that, too, I always like to, um, if I know of a certain location, I know there's something that's good and at least useful there. I'm going to keep my eyes open on the way there and maybe I'll find something randomly while I'm traveling there. So you just keep your eyes open anyway. Yeah. But you know, at least you're further focused. You're probably going to get something good. Um so it, there's just a double benefit there because, you know, the end result is it's pretty probably going to be pretty good. And who knows, you might even end up with something better along the way. Yeah, for sure. And okay, Jim, now, I feel like you're, you're going to get like a, a photography peace prize for all the, the fist fights you help alleviate <laughs> yeah, these spots. That's right. No kidding. <laughs> Sometimes it's nuts. It's nuts in some of these places. In, yeah. uh, in China, we've on the workshop we did last year, um, uh, we had we went to a location that I'd been to the year before, uh, and I didn't see any other photographers there. And this time, there were no less than 300, 400 location, <laughs> 400 photographers there, and they had built a five tier, like a five story observation deck for photographers to stand on to shoot these oh. rice terraces. There were no photographers wow. there uh, when we were there the year before. Wow. Um, and, and it was a festival that week, but uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it was just so clear that, <laughs> man, it's a big world out there. Uh, let's explore some of it, you know? Okay, now the, the other thing that I wanted to mention that uh, is another main thing that we wanted to accomplish with, um, uh, with the app is just having the gps coordinates usually well sometimes is sufficient you know if it's a waterfall you just kind of go to the gps coordinates and shoot it right well sometimes but how do we know if that waterfall takes a 20 mile hike to get there um you can't get that just by listing uh gps coordinates and so when something's fully automated um you're going to get a lot more locations than we'll have, um, but uh, it won't be curated. And so you see this waterfall and you say, oh, it's only 50 miles away from my house. Sweet. And so you drive out there on a Saturday morning and then you realize, oh man, I got to park and hike the rest of 20 miles. You can't get that information just by grabbing geotagged images on Flickr. Somebody has to do the research for it. Um, so, so those are the things that we set out to find. Now, there will be problems absolutely with, with our app when, when it's uh, released. The number one problem is by do, going with this curated approach, you're going to have fewer spots in the app at launch. You're going to. I mean, we're, we have literally thousands. My goal was 3,000. We've already surpassed that. I think we'll be more like four to between four and 6,000 locations uh, worldwide when we launch. But let's put that in perspective. Uh, the the uh, land in on planet Earth is 57 million square miles. 57 million square miles of land, not not including water. Uh, so 57 million square miles, and we have what four to six thousand uh, locations. That's pretty low. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So uh, that's where I really need your help. Um, is 
is using the app and uh, and putting in locations as much as possible uh, when the apps launch. It'll be great for you because it kind of logs uh, your trip so you can find your way back to locations. Uh, it's also good for the user because um, you can put on your uh, on your profile, first of all, links to your social media and stuff. But I'd also encourage you to put uh, a day rate for uh, for kind of guiding in your area. Even if you're not, you know, a photography workshop instructor, if you really know photography in your area, lots of good spots, upload your photos of them, uh, and then people can click to your profile. We have a big box there. As I put as huge as possible the photo credit line to get people interested in seeing uh, other photographers and getting interested in their work. Um, and put, you know, hey, if you're in the if you're in the Boise area, you know, my rate, day rate's 250 bucks. If you want to come shoot with me, I can show you lots of great locations. So I want it to be a way to for photographers to get attention because you know if I'm traveling somewhere, if I'm going to Holland, whatever, and I've never been there before, and I can get a local photographer to come around with me, well, I spend a lot of money to get to Holland. Heck yeah, I'm gonna spend $250 if somebody can really show me around and get me to the to the hot spots. That'd be fantastic. So I, I hope it's something that can drive business to photographers as well. That's awesome. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it sounds really good. Looking forward to it. It's going to be called Really Good Photo Spots. Um, and it's gonna be launching in March. A uh, big project. I've been putting in 80 hours, 80 hour weeks, um, uh, hardly sleeping, but uh, hopefully we'll uh, have it all ready for you. All right, we want to talk a little bit more about the 2016 MacBook for photographers, the new Pentax KP, and of course, the doodads of the week. But before we do that, we want to take a second and thank two companies that have made this episode of the podcast possible. The first one is... Squarespace. You know about Squarespace. We've talked about Squarespace for a long time because it's a great company. Uh, they provide my, my photography portfolio. Uh, what I love about Squarespace is the flexibility of it. Um, I often have friends and family who ask me about starting a website, you know, for their business or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, and what I have learned is if you recommend Squarespace, one, they're going to save money because plans start at just $8 a month. Uh, but two, you don't have to support their website for them for the next year. It's really easy to use. They have great customer support 24 seven. Um, and they have beautiful uh, gallery and templates for photographers. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code improve to get 10% off your first purchase. That's improve for 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. And also by Zenfolio. Zenfolio is a great option for your photography portfolio because it's built for photographers. If you want to upload photos to uh, to clients and have a client gallery there, it has it built in. If you want to have it uh, so they can order prints right off your website and sell your photos right there, Zenfolio is a great option for you. Whether you're a full-time pro shooting on the side or you just need a beautiful functional photography website uh, to run your business successfully. Zenfolio is a great option. They've been vo voted number one by professional photographers year after year. And best of all, Zenfolio provides 24-hour customer support, meaning you'll have on-call business partner to help you elevate your brand and maximize your selling potential. And now you can get 30% off any annual plan when you use offer code IMPROVE at Zenfolio.com. So don't wait. Get your get started today and see the impact of a Zenfolio website. Um, that's Z-E-N-F-O-L-I-O.com. Offer code IMPROVE for 30% off any annual plan. Build it beautiful with 
was Zenfolio, websites, proofing, and selling. All right, um, the next topic is the MacBook 2016 for photographers. So this is not a, a brand new product, uh, product, but this is something you've been using, Greg. Uh, why did you choose the, the 2016 MacBook for your photography? For me, it was pretty simple. I, I've been using Macs for about the last six years. I used to build PCs before that, so I'm very comfortable with both. Um, as someone who's uh, an educator doing a lot of YouTube videos and traveling, doing a lot of shooting on location, I need a lot of storage space and I don't want to deal with external drives that um, it's one more thing to carry. It's one more thing that might get disconnected, lost, etc. cetera. Um, I mean, to give you a sense of how much I shoot, um, I just got back from a three week trip around the Middle East and I filled up a 68 or sorry, a 128, a 64, uh, actually three sixty fours and a 32 gig card on that trip and downloaded everything to my laptop as, as I was going. So I, wow. I, how I, do you shoot that many frames? I can, <laughs> I can go shoot a week in another country and put it all on one 64 gig card. How do you shoot that many frames? So, so everything I'm shooting is a, a D810, 14 bit, you know, raw. So the largest, you know, files coming off that thing, they're not uncompressed TIFFs, but they're pretty big files. Uh, and then I shoot a lot of images for a scene. Um, so I'll go in and I will bracket, but then I'll shoot over time because I'm going to, with luminosity masking, I'll blend different images. So I might grab, uh, you know, the, the blue hour shot and then grab the lights later in the night and blend that, or I might, um, And are you just shooting it. three shot brackets? Typically. Yeah. So I, I shoot minus two, the normal exposure and plus two. And then with those, I'll create the plus or minus one for blending because I like to blend one stop apart, but you don't need to shoot one stop apart. Um, and then I, so on this trip, I was shooting, you know, multiple times panorama, you know, with, you know, pretty, pretty large files. And like I said, I'm blending these things. So for example, I was shooting the Burj Khalifa and I would sweep a panorama of it, you know, at one time a night and then I'd sweep it later to get the cars. And then I was shooting, the fountains at a different ISO and a different speed. I'm, I'm grabbing all these different little elements to put together. So I probably will shoot two or 300 images. Then I'll pick, you know, anywhere from like three to 10 or 15 images to actually blend into one finished image. So it's, it's pretty intensive. So why choose the, the MacBook? I mean, uh, in terms of power, it's pretty low powered. I mean, your max gigabytes is eight gigabytes and, and 1.3 gigahertz uh, processor. Um, why, why pick this one? Well, uh, so the, 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 the new 2016 MacBook Pro, you can get 16 gigs oh, of MacBook RAM. Pro. Yeah. Uh -huh. Pro. yeah. I thought yeah, we were yeah, talking yeah. about the MacBook. No, no, no. Now the, the new... we're talking. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that, Jim. Ah, okay. <laughs> now we're talking something very different. I thought you were talking about the 2016 MacBook. No, this is the new one with the touch bar. Okay, so you're shooting the new MacBook Pro with the uh, with the touch bar. Um, you you pick the two terabyte hard drive, which is huge. Uh, I, I usually am fine with 500 gigabytes, even when I'm traveling and shooting. Uh, but I don't shoot that many frames. That's awesome. Um, so so what what computer were you coming from before the the MacBook Pro? I had a, a 2014 MacBook Pro that had one terabyte. And I was consistently, you know, topping out with like, you know, 20 gigs free. I mean, it was just running out of space every trip. Wow. 
Um, yeah, I, I've got like six terabytes of data. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm plugged into a RAID system when I'm at home. Um, so two terabytes is just what I want for on the road, especially now that I'm shooting video. You know, if I'm shooting uh, an on-location tutorial or things like that, I need a little more headroom. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll go into the field with a terabyte free and I'll probably fill a lot of that up. How's the battery life been for you? Um, I'd say it's the same as the old one in my experience. Uh, I'm using Firefox and there seems to be something wrong with it lately. So I think that might be robbing a little battery life. It, it hangs on me a lot. Something wrong with it. Um, um, and, and what about the touch bar? Do you find yourself using it? No, I think it's really gimmicky right now. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 it's beautiful. It looks awesome. And every time I show it to someone, they think it's just the, the greatest thing. It looks beautiful. But uh, none of the Office programs support it. Firefox doesn't support it. Photoshop has it, but I know the keyboard shortcut, so I don't really use it. Uh, Final Cut Pro 10 has it, but again, I'm not really using uh, the touch bar. That's probably the app that has the most value to the, to the touch bar. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like this laptop will be much better in a year because there'll be more apps that support the touch bar. Um, all the, the USB-C, you know, fiasco with the dongles will be a lot better in a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I, I literally spent over $200 on adapters for this laptop. <laughs> that's, that's the wow. question I wanted to ask is how you're dealing with that, with just the one connection uh, style, the one connection port. It's, it's painful to be honest, because <laughs> I mean, I, I bought new cables for everything I have, right? I got like the micro, I got the mini connectors. I've got the, I mean, oh. I've got so many connectors. Um, you know, and then we're downloading images off the camera. Uh, I bought this device that plugs directly into the laptop, but I found on my trip, it wasn't reliable. It was corrupting, you know, some of the files. Um, so I went back to a cabled one that I've got now, but so now I've got an external card reader instead of being able to plug the card right into it. Uh, there's no HDMI adapter. So when I go to present as a, an educator, I've got need an adapter for that. Uh, and then, you know, even I've got the new, um, you know, iPhone seven and I can't even use the new headphones you have to use with this on this laptop because the laptop has the old headphone jack. So it's, it's painful, but you know, I, I think it's a great connector when it's ubiquitous in a couple of years, it'll be awesome, but it's, yeah. it's kind of painful right now. Yeah. I'm kind of looking forward to it actually. I, uh, I seriously, seriously considered uh, selling my iMac and just going to uh, the MacBook Pro with uh, and with a nice dock that I can, um, you know, have a big 27 inch monitor, but have it all powered just from the laptop Uh, just so I could have just one computer. um, And I was very tempted to it uh, to do it. And then I started to see two things. One uh, is I looked at how much I could sell my still almost new uh, 27 inch iMac fully specced out. So fully specced out top of the top of the line iMac and a MacBook Air uh, that's pretty decent specs. And if I were to sell both of them used, I still couldn't buy. (laughs) I still would have to pay a lot of money out of pocket to get the MacBook Pro. Uh, So I was like, sheesh, that thing is expensive. Um, And then the second thing is I'm seeing rumors uh, that a 32 gigabyte uh, 2017 MacBook Pro may be in the works for um, for the end of this year. And if that's true, 
that's going to be the thing that I think would get me to to move to just uh, a laptop because um, I really would like the portability and just having one computer. I really like just having a dock and a monitor, uh, but I'm not quite ready to do it. I, I can't go from 32 gigs in my Mac down to, to, 16, to 16 just yet uh, with all the video I do. Uh, but I, I think at the end of this year, if that does happen, there's a good chance that I'll move over. Yeah, I think that's the that's the one to get right. Touch bar will be better. The ports will be more ubiquitous. You, you get all the all the niceties. It is a nice laptop, though. I'd say one one thing about this they don't talk about that I think is the best feature of this laptop is the the built-in speakers on this are amazing. Hmm. Um, I was playing Metallica on this thing, and I just like kind of stopped dead in my tracks. It sounds so clear and it's so loud. You, I could host a house party with this laptop. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. So, all right. Uh, next, I wanted to talk about a new camera, one that I am pretty excited about. Um, and coming from a company that I would never have guessed to be excited about uh, this year, uh, but it is the Pentax KP. Uh, if you haven't seen this camera, you read the specs and you're like, is it April Fool's Day already? This can't be real. Uh, it, it's a pretty impressive, impressive spec list. No question about it. Uh, it has 24 megapixel APS-C, um, so crop sensor. Um, so uh, it's decent. You know, it's a little bit low on megapixels. I, I still like seeing 30 and up as uh, where I feel most uh, feel happiest, uh, just for the ability to crop is really nice. Like on the D810 to be able to crop as much as you can. Uh, so, but it's fine at 24 megapixels. You can certainly print as big as you want. Um, uh, so it has no AA filter, but the, the, the showstopper here is the ISO sensitivity goes up to 819,200. Whoa, <laughs> that is That's impressive. Amazing. <laughs> ISO 819 200. Uh, wow, uh, that is far better than the than even Sony's low light monsters. Um, and the low light images that have been posted so far seem to back it up. It's not. I mean, certainly you're not going to get an, a usable image at 819,000 ISO. I I usually say whatever the the company says it can do, back it down by like three to four stops and then we're talking reasonable mm -hmm. uh but uh but the low light images i've seen so far are really 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 impressive uh and of course it has the pixel pixel shift technology uh so it's 24 megapixels but uh if you're on a tripod it can shift the pixels and and increase the resolution dramatically the reviews i've seen of that feature so far are, are really impressive obviously isn't going to help portrait photographers so much uh but for uh landscape photography really really nice um, it has five axis uh, shake reduction system coming down from their full frame, 100% um, uh, field of view optical viewfinder, uh, 1 6,000 uh, mechanical shutter, which is pretty good, and then 24,000 uh, electronic shutter, which I give that a big meh. I, I have that on my on my Fuji uh, X Pro 2, and I never use the electronic shutter. I guess it'd be handy if you're shooting in a really quiet area or something. Uh, Built-in Wi-Fi, tiltable LCD, which is great, even though I don't know why they don't always put in the swivel. 
Um, and you can exchange the grip on it. You can physically take off the grip uh, and exchange it with uh, with other grips they have on there. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, it's one heck of a camera, uh, weather resistant. And the cool thing is it's $1,099. That's a amazing price for the the spec list that we're seeing here uh so what do you guys think is this uh is this something that could be finding your way into your camera bag this year it probably won't find its way into my camera bag but i sure wish it could because another thing i like about this camera is when you attach their gps unit to it it will sense where you're at on earth and if you're doing astro work you can do a long exposure but still get the pinpoints of light because it will move that sensor along the the axis it needs to move it in order to keep those stars in sharp focus say what i didn't know it did that that. yes that's amazing I i just love that so if you're looking for you know a 30 second or more exposure of the of the um milky way you could do it and it would just be phenomenal for for uh, for astrophotography. Is this new, or have other does. Pentax cameras done this? I think it was their full frame also do, does this. What planet was I on? I've never uh, heard of that. Know, That's so they cool. Don't talk about it enough, but, but it was just in the article I was just reading before the show, and I was just like, yes, I'm glad they put it in there. But people just don't talk about it. It would be phenomenally awesome to have that. Uh, I know some people, you know, they buy, say, the, the Rokinon or Samyang 14 F28. I was just talking on the other podcast with Jeff Harmer about that. And he was like, Jeff yeah, Harmon. Harmon, sorry. Um, uh, he was like, yeah, I have that just for, um, just for my astro work. And well, here you might just have a single camera just for your astro work. But um, obviously it does so much more as well. But that would be a reason if you're into that kind of work, consider this camera. It would be really, really sweet. It's well-priced. And with a pixel sense uh, shifting technology, and then you've got the ability to follow it. Uh, just amazing. Really good stuff here from Pentax. That, that sounds like I would eat that up instead of having to stack 10 different images to get rid of the noise and everything else. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty awesome. And now, the, the, the thing about their tilt, uh, I, I'm trying to find out if they have the exact same model as they do on the K1, but as far as their their uh, screen, you're talking about the, the articulating screen, mm-hmm. they have a different uh, connector that's a very strong. Uh, and when I was at... Uh, the the photokina they were they were showing uh, the people were just dangling the camera by the screen and just effectively shaking it and just showing off how strong that that screen connector is and so they're probably using the same thing which is just very robust so that's probably why it's not a full articulating uh, screen on that but it's still a pretty good a pretty good screen hmm, very cool. Uh, well, there are some drawbacks to the camera, like there always are. Um, drawback number one is it's probably a Sony sensor. Um, you know, we never know really until we take her down, but um, but at this point, it's probably a Sony sensor. Um, and if that's true, um, I guess I, I don't know how much of a drawback it is, but just the fact that uh, when a Sony sensor is out, you know it's coming to other camera manufacturers as well. Um, and so yeah i i guess the point is maybe don't jump ship just yet if you're on a different system because uh, uh we very well could see the same sensor um in other cameras as well the other thing is only 390 shots uh per battery that's pretty pretty low battery life so you'll have to buy several extra batteries 
Um, and also, it doesn't really do 4K uh, video. The advertising is 4K interval video. <laughs> Very clever. Um, but it doesn't really do 4K. Uh, it's really just 1920 by um, uh, or, uh, 1080. And so there are drawbacks if you're a video guy, uh, if you need longer battery life. Um, but it's a very impressive thing. It also has magnesium alloy construction, so it uh, should be strong. Um, lots to like about it. It's a camera that I absolutely would like to play with this year. Um, I don't know what the what the lens system is like for Pentax's crop sensor. I know Pentax's uh, full frame um, has some really nice lenses. I just don't know anything about their their crop sensor line of lenses. And to me, that's like the number one thing I'm interested in when I'm looking at a camera. Uh, the lens system means more to me than the body of the camera does. Uh, so I, I need to do some exploration there and just kind of see what's available um, and uh, in terms of their lens system. How, do you know how that um, you know, that fast shutter, would, the electronic shutter would work with bright light and with strobes? So I could, I could see that being pretty cool for shooting, you know, midday light when you want to shoot wide aperture, you know, shallow depth of field and you don't want to bother with ND filters. That could be pretty mm -hmm. cool. But if it causes sensor bloom and other issues, then maybe not. Yeah, I don't know how well it works. Again, I have it on my Fuji and I've turned it on a couple times just to toy with it, but I haven't done any real testing with it to see what the utility really of it is. In that situation, I usually just put on an ND filter, but it would be cool if you could just do that in camera. Yeah. I would imagine you would increase your synchronization speed uh, with your flash photography uh, maybe not all the way to one twenty-four thousandth of a second, but you're still going to probably be able to increase your sync speed beyond what the normal uh, rating would be. Yeah, good question. I, I haven't seen any sync speed numbers uh, off this camera yet, so I'd, I'd be interested in that. That was one of the main th reasons that kept me, other than the price, uh, that kept me off Fuji's full frame or medium format announcement um, is that really low uh, flash sync speed of one one twenty fifth of a second, um, and so that's that's pretty important. The flash sync speed is yeah. is a big deal as far as I'm concerned. I use flash a lot, uh, and so uh, it, yeah, that's a big number for me. I just looked it up. It's one eightieth of a second on this camera, so it, they don't say anything about using the electronic shutter yet. Wait, one eightieth? Uh, you mean one one eightieth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. One one eightieth of a second. Not too bad. That's pretty good. I I, I like seeing Standard. one two fiftieth, but uh, but not too bad. Yeah. Well, yeah. very cool. Yeah. Looks like an interesting camera for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Um. Now we are on to the doodads of the week. Uh. I'll share mine first. I guess. Um. I. Uh, have been working on redoing my garage because uh, it is a mess out there. And so I bought a new uh, light bulb uh, for my garage that I think would be uh, definitely interesting for a lot of photographers. It is a, this is a, a corn light bulb is the style. So it plugs into a normal outlet, uh, but it's, it doesn't look at all like a normal light bulb. It kind of, well, it looks like an ear of corn it has kind of rows of LEDs uh, and it has a little internal fan and stuff. Um, and so it gets insanely bright. So 3,500 lumens. So a typical house light bulb is 800 lumens, 1,600 lumens. It'd be a really bright one. This is 3,500 lumens from a single bulb. Uh, and it's all LEDs, so it's cool. 
Um, you know, it's not going to make your room get really hot and stuff. Um, you can get it in a couple different, uh, balances of, of daylight or, or incandescent, whatever. Uh, but, um, I think this is a really interesting light for photographers. If you're using constant lights, um, constant lights have a few different options for bulbs, but the, the most common that I see in photography studios um, is is just like the big CFL types, uh, and they just the the quality of the light is not super great from CFLs. They aren't as consistent um, in their light output and temperature, uh, and so this is a really consistent, nice, uh, clean white light. So if you have constant lights, you know you're a baby photographer, commercial photographer, something, and you need them to run cool, uh, this would be a great option for you it's 30 bucks per bulb uh but if you have constant lights uh this is the bulb i would put in them and if you need some more you get the the 120 watt version that has 12,000 lumens so, yes that I mean, one is uh, that one's for commercial street lights you have to have a different uh connector on the bottom but oh whoa, baby okay? i was excited when i saw that i was like yes i'm buying it and then i realized it was a different base oh man <laughs> all right what do you have for us brent what I have for my doodad of the week is a little uh, Sony voice recorder. It's specifically the ICD UX533. Uh, that means nothing to me because I had to search really hard to find that. Um, but basically, I'll hold it up to my camera for those of you watching on the, uh, the YouTube idea. It's a little pocketable voice recorder, and I use it all the time when I make my little videos because when I'm out there in the field, whether it's... Um, just shooting a little, you know, travelogue type thing or doing a little bit of a, of a training type idea, gear review, whatever the case is. Uh, oftentimes I'm using my GoPro and the audio on the GoPro stinks. It's terrible. So what I'm going to do is I'll use this. I have a little lapel mic that goes along with it. Uh, came with the kit. I think it's about a hundred dollars and it just has really good quality. Uh, has a USB allows me to plug it directly into my computer uh, so I can download the MP3 files and it also has a micro SD card so if I wanted to I could take it out that way and, and plug it in that way so it's really handy and I really appreciate uh, th having this device for doing the, the audio portions of my videos cool Greg how about you uh, well, I was gonna I was gonna throw out the uh, the Nikon uh, tilt shift that we already kind of covered that so I'm gonna th I'll throw out a different uh, gizmo uh, one of my favorite pieces of kit is a headlamp from uh, the company Petzl, and they make a particular model called the uh, Tika RXP. And this thing, it's compact. You don't have the extra battery, you know, hanging off you and that kind of crazy stuff on some of these high-end ones. And it's so bright, I can focus in pure blackness on trees that are about 50 feet away. Mm. So for me, with you know, whether it's the sun's gone down and I got to hike back in the dark or I'm actually trying to do astrophotography and I need to focus on the foreground or something like that. It's just this awesome all-in-one headlamp. It's super reasonable, extremely bright, and it's you know USB rechargeable. So it's just really easy. I think they have, they have a, I think there might be a newer, even brighter version than the one I got, but the, the Tikka RXP is the one I've been using. Very cool. Well, thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of the Improved Photography Podcast, and we will see you in another seven days. And if you're still listening after the show has ended, I'd love it if you head over to improvephotography.com. At the very top of the website, uh, I have a little red banner that has a link to submit uh, locations to the Photo Locations app. 
thousands and thousands of you submitted locations this week to me by email. I really appreciate it. I've spent so much time going through it. There are some, some of you were especially generous sharing a lot of locations and spending a ton of time sending them over to me. That was awesome. And so I created a handy uh, page on the website where you can upload photos and, and description of, of uh, locations, whatever. So if you just go to improvephotography.com and click uh, that banner at the top of the website to submit locations, I'd really appreciate it. And we'll give you a uh, credit in the app. Uh, try to get some uh, publicity to your order photos. Thanks guys. Bye.